Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains depictions of war, violence, suicide, sexual assault, rape, gore, mature themes, and racism. The Spanish Empire was one of the most powerful political entities in world history. They unified all of the Iberian Peninsula under Habsburg rule fusing with Portugal in 1580. Additionally, they controlled the Philippines, the Low Countries of present-day Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, a huge amount of land in Italy, and nearly all of South America, Mexico, and the North American West. Because the Spanish Empire was so vast, The small islands in the Caribbean mattered very little to the king and his advisors. The islands, which no longer produced gold, were largely ignored by the inept Spanish monarchs who had their sights set on riches rather than the lives and integrity of the peoples over whom they ruled. This gluttony slowly deteriorated the empire from the inside. Other European powers saw this as their opportunity to assert their own interests. In the Spanish-occupied Netherlands, religious differences and the grumblings of the merchant and upper classes led to the Dutch Revolt of 1568. For decades, Holland and Zeeland had been treated as a dumping ground for Spanish goods, namely Castilian wool. During the revolt, the Dutch would cast out the Spanish, finally succeeding in ridding themselves of Spanish influence and creating a colonial empire which would challenge Spanish hegemony throughout the world. In Puerto Rico, the political and military machinations of Spain mattered very little to the common person. They lived in small huts with dirt floors and had very few possessions. A hammock and a spear were the extent of their personal property. They lived quiet, sedentary lives, away from major population centers, sometimes deep in the forests and mountains. The Spaniards and their children were the property holders throughout the region. Many controlled large plantations called haciendas, while others controlled massive cattle ranches called hatos. Their estates were worked by enslaved Africans and in some cases indebted individuals. Their main crop had been sugar for many years. Humans' infatuation with sugar started long ago. The first record of sugar consumption comes from an ancient Chinese manuscript dated in the 8th century BCE. There is some question as to its origin, but many consider it a product of East Asia and the Indonesian islands, specifically. In Europe, 
Crusaders first encountered sugar when they met merchants from India who sold it by the name of sweet salt. This set off European fascination with the strange grainy substance. By the mid-15th century, people began using it as a tool for art. Many sugar-based models were created, meant to adorn noble dinner parties and dances. It was then that enterprising Venetians took advantage of their trade connections in the Middle East. They quickly started to monopolize the sugar industry, growing it in their Mediterranean holdings to increase their already massive profits. Sugar proved to be as lucrative a commodity as gold and silver. It was an incredibly complex process to grow sugar in the 17th century. If you intended to grow sugarcane during this time, you first had to have rich enough soil and be able to protect the young plants from parasites and natural disasters. After 15 months of careful watering and feeding, the cane was able to be chopped. Enslaved peoples did this all day, well into the night. When this cane was cut, it had to be rapidly transported via donkey or cattle to the sugar mill. The mill was usually powered by oxen. It was crucial that the cane juice be crushed within a few hours of chopping, lest your whole harvest fail. Once each stalk of sugar cane had been crushed twice, it was used as compost, but the juice was sent down into the boiling house. There, the master sugar maker went to work, boiling the juice in five separate coppers. They followed this up by cooling the sugar twice. This whole process took a week and required the furnaces of the boiling houses to remain running the entire time. Following the second cooling, if you've done everything right, small crystals should begin to form from there, it is left to its own devices in a cool, dry place. The end result is unrefined muscovado, or brown sugar, which is then banged out of its tins and into bags for sale. To make white sugar, a clay mixture was added to the top of the pot. This clay mixture sucked the molasses from the crushed sugarcane juices, leaving white sugar in its place, which soon became extremely popular. A single problem anywhere down the line would be disastrous for profits. It was a boom and bust crop to say the least, but Puerto Rican authorities were sure it would alleviate the bitter economic problems on the island. Money constantly left in the hands of Spanish or other foreign merchants, and the government was woefully lacking in funds. The few thousand people who lived in Puerto Rico were also experiencing a demographic catastrophe. Women outnumbered men nearly two to one. Many men had left illegally to seek their fortune in Mexico and Peru. Death was the penalty for anyone found leaving. This paradoxical strategy managed to tether few to the island. The few Spanish soldiers on the island were paid with IOUs or straight-from-well-to-do citizens' pockets. The military governor was continually at a loss over how to pay for upkeep and basic necessities. He ruled in the king's name and had absolute authority over the island. He, in turn, took orders from the Audiencia of Santo Domingue. The governor's lieutenants were called the Teniente Aguera. They managed the day-to-day -day in the island districts and towns. 
local town councils were formed into cabildos, which consisted of high society men. People of color, Creole peoples, and women could not be chosen for these positions. The king believed he stumbled onto a solution for the chronic economic problems in Puerto Rico. He proclaimed a sitiudado, or subsidy. This was meant to function as a stimulus check for the island, in which gold and coins from Mexico were supposed to arrive annually. In reality, this annual delivery was incredibly dubious. Whole decades would go by without the sitiudado arriving in San Juan. To state the problem from History of Puerto Rico, a panorama of its peoples by Fernando Pico, quote, It is true that when the sitiudado was late, many soldiers took goods on credit from San Juan merchants. If the delays went on for a long time, a great many people fell into debt. A whole chain of debt resulted, which involved the whole city, from the very rich to the very poor. Unquote. The problem New Spain claimed was that piracy was ravaging the Caribbean. The ships carrying the Sitiudado were constantly harassed, and single ships were seen as easy prey to any enterprising pirate willing to get their hands dirty. The phenomena of piracy is one of the most discussed and romanticized tales in world history. Hollywood movies have often romanticized the Caribbean pirate as a Robin Hood of the sea, or a sex symbol. In reality, pirates were brutal to any and all people with whom they came in contact, often destroying whole towns while they raped and murdered the citizens at their leisure. Thanks to the massive amount of space and lack of population density in the Caribbean, piracy ran rampant there. The Vikings, Japanese, and North Africans all had prolific pirates in their time. But the Caribbean pirate seems to have captured something in the collective imagination, even to this day. Pirates seem to have come from every walk of life. Some became so famous that they require little introduction. But there are dozens more whose names are lost to history. There was the Dutch, Roque Brasiliano, best known for burning Spanish prisoners alive over a spit and regularly chopping off limbs. Roque simply disappeared, falling off the map of recorded history. There was Bartholomew Roberts, a common Welshman who found himself named captain of a pirate crew. He laid waste to the Caribbean and even declared war on the entire British Empire. But he was finally killed in battle when cannon grapeshot cut his throat. His last wish was that his body would never be found. So his crew tied the fallen mass to him, casting him into his final resting place in the sea. By far one of the most savage pirates was the Frenchman Francois Lolenus. Following his arrival in the Caribbean as an indentured servant, he started out as a mediocre buccaneer preying on Spanish ships. After a terrifying storm, his ship was wrecked off the coast of Campeche, Mexico. Here, a group of Spanish soldiers attacked Francois and his crew, killing nearly everyone. Francois was one of the few left alive. He covered his body in the blood of his crewmen and feigned death to survive. From that day forward, he vowed to never give quarter to any Spaniard he found. He attacked Puerto Rico many times, 
raising San Herman and taking thousands of pounds of materials. He met his end in Honduras, where he and his 700 pirates were ambushed by a Spanish force. He escaped and captured two Spaniards, whom he needed to lead the way to safety. When they refused to cooperate, Alexander Olivier Exquemelin says that the French pirate Francois, quote, drew his cutlass and with it cut open the breast of one of those poor Spanish and pulling out his heart with his sacrilegious hands, began to bite and gnaw at it with his teeth like a ravenous wolf, saying to the rest, I will serve you all alike if you show me not another way, Unquote. He would eventually be captured by a tribe of natives in modern-day Panama, where his body was ripped to pieces and his limbs cast into the fire. Thanks to piracy and the ever-present danger of foreign attack, Puerto Rico was declared a presidio, or a strategic bedrock of the Spanish Empire. It was outfitted for attack, and by 1590, it was prepared for such an eventuality. Throughout the 1580s and 1590s, defensive works were bolstered and several new fortifications built to better defend the key to the Indies, a term coined by the Earl of Cumberland. The fort's garrison increased by 150 men each, though most men did not want to be there at all. The Spanish military's laws were ridiculously harsh. They required one to serve the monarch for nearly 20 years, and forbade those who served from marrying. Many who served hoped to be sent to an active front in the hopes of plunder or a quick discharge. Those who served in Puerto Rico often neglected to heed these ridiculous laws and had families in the hills, where they would grow subsistence crops or raise goats. The war in the Spanish lowlands was not going well for Spain. They held their own against the Dutch, but when England joined on the Dutch stallholders' side, the tide seemed to be turning. Spain sent the Armada Invincible to crush the nascent English threat once and for all. In the fights that followed, the whole Armada of 50,000 sailors and 137 ships would be nearly destroyed. 44 Spanish ships were lost, along with 20,000 of the sailors. Its destruction was thanks in part to the Englishman Sir Francis Drake. Born in Devon, England in 1540, Sir Francis Drake was a privateer, adventurer, and navigator. By the time he helped swamp the Spanish Armada, he had already circumnavigated the globe and raided most of the Spanish Caribbean. Queen Elizabeth then devised a plan to crush the Spanish. Upon learning that two million pieces of Spanish gold and silver had to be quickly deposited in San Juan, she sent Sir John Hawkins and Sir Francis Drake with a fleet of over 17 ships and 4,500 sailors to take Puerto Rico and the gold rumored to be stored in San Juan's vaults. They first attempted to capture the Canary Islands. When this attack faltered, they made for the open Atlantic. By the time they were in Caribbean waters, thousands of sailors were sick from dysentery. At Guadalupe? A Spanish fleet of five vessels was lucky enough to spot and sink an English ship that had lost its way. The Spanish fleet sailed hard for San Juan to warn the local population. As news reached the small island, the people prepared themselves for a fight. 750 Puerto Rican and Spanish soldiers 
alongside the 800 Spanish sailors who warned them, were ready for the assault. To prevent the British from entering through the bay, several Spanish vessels were scuttled at the bay's mouth. When the British vessels were sighted on November 22nd, initial shots were fired between Fort El Moro and Drake's vessels. Unbeknownst to the Puerto Ricans who were fighting for their island, Sir John Hawkins died that morning of the same dysentery, which was killing hundreds of British sailors. As the long-range duel proceeded, a well-placed shot from El Moro nearly killed Francis Drake. He was sitting in his cabin having dinner when a cannonball, quote, stroke the stool from under him, unquote. This ball killed two of his officers who were unlucky enough to be in its path of destruction. Following this early engagement, it was clear El Moro could not be destroyed by Drake's fleet. Drake returned to the bay's mouth and launched an attack against the harbor in the night. To state what the British dealt with from Puerto Rico, a political and cultural history by Arturo Morales Carrion, quote, With 25 launches, each carrying 50 to 60 men and benefiting from the darkness, the English tried to force their entry into the harbor and set fire to the frigates. For an hour, the fight went on between the men on board the frigates and the English, who at the same time had to endure a heavy fire from the forts, unquote. One Spanish ship was set alight, but this provided a homing beacon for the Spanish artillery. The English sailors were trounced, forced to retreat after suffering over 400 casualties and losing 10 of their launches. Drake called off the assault and left hundreds dead. He would be dead within the year, killed by the same dysentery which ended the life of Sir John Hawkins. San Juan was secure for now, and the militia, usually only armed with machetes and spears, performed incredibly well. The people of Puerto Rico felt they could rest easier knowing that the threat at their doorstep had been quelled. The people resisted the British attack, but they could not resist the epidemic that soon swept the island, killing hundreds of slaves, workers, and prisoners in the capital. This outbreak led to the Puerto Rican state being crippled and left on the back burner before another massive British fleet arrived. This fleet was led by the third Earl of Cumberland, George Clifford. Cumberland wanted to recreate and one-up the accomplishments of the late Sir Francis Drake. He set his sights on one of the few prizes which had eluded Drake, Puerto Rico. Instead of fighting it out on the bay with his war vessels, he would effect a landing in modern-day Cangrejos and march along the coast until he arrived at the back door of San Juan. It was an ingenious move. The Spanish authorities never counted on this course of action. The British were held up at the Soldiers' Bridge by ferocious Puerto Rican resistance. In response, Cumberland expertly divided his forces and attacked San Juan from the front, utilizing a separate naval landing. This landing succeeded, and soon only El Moro stood against Cumberland's 1,400 British soldiers. After a 15-day-long siege, the few hungry and sick defenders of the capital's fort capitulated. Cumberland had done it. He captured Puerto Rico. However, he would soon learn that capturing and keeping an island 
were two very different things. The few British fighting men soon found they were infected with the same disease that wrecked San Juaneros the year before. Hundreds of soldiers died. Additionally, the people of Puerto Rico refused to comply with Cumberland's orders to hand over their food and provisions to British soldiers. British patrols sent to the interior of the island would find themselves ambushed in the hills, as guerrilla attacks continued to increase their casualties. By late August 1598, Cumberland had had enough. The British would retreat, but not before looting and destroying as much of the city as they could. They captured 2,000 enslaved individuals, burned two sugar plantations, and razed the entire city of San Juan. Alongside this, Cumberland had captured thousands of pounds of sugar, hides, tobacco, ginger, and even San Juan's church bells. After Cumberland's lieutenant finally closed up shop in September of the same year, the British occupation was over. The Puerto Rican people proved they were up to the challenge. Twice within a few years, they withstood assaults from the world's premier armed forces. Throughout Cumberland's and Drake's attacks, Puerto Rico went through major economic changes. Brazilian sugar had recently arrived on the world market, wreaking havoc on global prices. Sugar mills across the Caribbean went under, as the glut of Brazilian cane swamped competition. Ginger was identified as a possible replacement for the failing Puerto Rican sugar industry. Ginger is a root that can be used to spice food and drinks and it is commonly used as a home remedy for various minor illnesses and ailments. In fact, up until the 18th century, hot ginger tea was the go-to morning beverage for many Puerto Ricans. It grew very easily and did not need massive plantations to accommodate it. The production of this crop was a boon for many Puerto Ricans, who did not have the means to invest in the machinery, human and mechanical, which produced profitable amounts of sugar. Unfortunately, Santo Domingue jealously guarded their right to grow ginger exclusively. This led to an increase in tension between the island neighbors. Santo Domingue was even able to secure a royal monopoly on the crop. This made it impossible for Puerto Ricans to sell ginger legally, but it opened the door for a vast illegal ginger market throughout the rest of the world. Puerto Ricans needed a new legal export to which they could turn. Hides and leathers were always productive, with Hato owners wielding considerable power in the cabildos thanks to their economic status. For a time, Palo Santo was exported, along with coconuts and local fruits. However, the staying power of these goods on Spanish markets was virtually non-existent. A new raw material or crop was needed to keep the Puerto Rican economy afloat. This desperation caused the people to turn to tobacco. Tobacco was originally grown by the native Tainos for ceremonial purposes. Since then, the addictive qualities of the leaf had been captivating European high society. Tobacco, like sugar, is an intensive, labor-filled process. First, one must clear the land. Then plant a field of tobacco seedlings. Next, the seedlings, which are strong enough to survive, are moved to montones, or hills. From there, the grower must remain ever vigilant, repeatedly pruning or suckering the plant, 
and keeping it free from pests like tobacco worms. Once the leaves mature, they are cut by hand and cured in a complex process which requires perfect levels of humidity and dryness. These leaves were then packaged and rolled into cigarettes or cigars to be smoked by European elites. Once the people committed to growing tobacco commercially, the crop grew in substantial amounts throughout Puerto Rico. Unfortunately, this crop would meet the same fate as Puerto Rican sugarcane, as Virginia began exporting tobacco leaf en masse. The Puerto Rican people hoped that a new venture would be more fruitful. Cacao was grown for thousands of years by native Mesoamericans. Its bittersweet flavor and texture made it popular with Aztec chiefs. They created a liquid version of it which was drunk with chili powder and a spice called ear flour. It supposedly gave one supernatural ability and cured the drinker of any ailments. Due to its association with native practices, cacao was considered blasphemous for a long time. By the 17th century, this belief was quickly destroyed, and cacao soon adorned the shelves of many upscale Spaniards. In one of the first instances of cultural appropriation, the Spaniards quickly co-opted the Aztec chocolate drink. The bean was grown in Puerto Rico with varying success. The cost of moving the beans to Spain was simply too high, and most cacao production on the island was quickly abandoned. Puerto Rico's economic struggle, however, was just beginning. Starting in 1517 with Martin Luther's 95 theses, Protestantism or Reformism was sweeping Germany, the Nordic countries, and the Low Countries. In England, the Reformation took the form of Anglicanism, the state religion founded by Henry VIII as an answer to the Pope refusing to grant the king a divorce. In March of 1603, the Anglican Queen Elizabeth I passed away. Being without an heir, the crown was given to her kin, James I, who was still a devout Catholic. This changed the diplomatic relationship between Spain and England, as they ceased constant fighting after James's ascension to the throne. Throughout the rest of Europe, the Reformation was militarizing both wings of Christianity. This would lead to the aforementioned Dutch revolt against the Spanish, as well as French massacres against their Huguenot populations. In 1609, Dutch and Spanish leaders agreed to a 12 years truce. In the intervening years, the United Provinces would grow ever stronger economically and militarily. As the war to keep the Netherlands independent recommenced, the conflict would spill over into the genocidal Thirty Years' War. Protestants and Catholics would massacre each other for decades. Upwards of 8 million people would be killed for believing in the quote-unquote wrong form of Christianity. One of the main reasons for the recommencement of hostilities between Spain and the Netherlands had to do with the Dutch salt extraction from Portuguese mines and then the salt flats of the Caribbean. They used this salt to help preserve the vast amounts of herring which Dutch fishing fleets caught in the North Sea and then sold to Europe en masse. This exclusive Dutch industry made them incredibly rich and put them in a position to take on the Spanish, who were lacking in innovation and military prowess at the time. In Puerto Rico, 
Dutchmen were often found on the southern shore gathering salt and trading illegally with the locals. They knew Puerto Rico was a strategically valuable island and that it was plentiful in natural resources. The Dutch wished to properly exploit the island's people and materials. In order to do this, they must invade and expel the Spaniards. Many European militaries felt that destroying and occupying Spanish colonial holdings would destroy Spain itself. The Dutch had already snatched several islands in the Lesser Antilles. Additionally, they began founding colonies on the Guyana coast. Puerto Rico would be just another notch on the belt for the ambitious Dutch. They organized themselves into the powerful Dutch West India Company and began mercilessly raiding Spanish ships. The Dutch were soon organizing whole military expeditions against Spanish colonies. After failing to retake Bahia de Brazil, 17 Dutch ships carrying over 6,000 men under the command of Boudouin Hendrickson changed direction for Puerto Rico. It was September 24, 1625, when the fleet was first spotted. The people of San Juan panicked and left their possessions for the safety of the hills. The next day, the whole Dutch fleet stormed into San Juan's harbor. There would be no long-range artillery fight. The thousands of Dutchmen who landed quickly overran the few hundred Spanish and Puerto Rican defenders who fell back to El Moro with haste. The Dutch laid siege to El Moro as Hendrickson attempted to starve out the Puerto Rican and Spanish garrison. Military governor of Puerto Rico, Juan de Haro, was a lifelong soldier, having founded the colony and present-day city of Cumana on the Venezuelan coast at a very early age. He also fought with distinction in Flanders against the Dutch. De Haro acted decisively in the first days of the siege. He rationed food, called up the island's militias, and personally directed the fort's cannon fire. To state what happened when De Haro refused Dutch calls for surrender, from the book Puerto Rico, A Political and Cultural History, by Arturo Marias Carrion, quote, De Haro's refusal to surrender El Moro provoked the Dutch into a desperate barrage against the fort and a tightening of the siege. The defenders were even more determined to fight, ever increasing the sorties in which Dutch soldiers were beheaded and equipment and food obtained. Outstanding among the performances was that of Captain Juan de Azmequita, who on October 5th led a group of 50 men to attack the trenches and slash the throats of more than 60 Dutch soldiers, including a captain and a sergeant major." Unquote. Following this attack, another successful nighttime offensive was ordered, and the small fort El Cañuelo was taken back by the Spanish and Puerto Rican defenders. Every day, Puerto Ricans from across the island marched to the capital to join in the defense of their island. By October, the besieged had the same number of men as the besiegers. Hendrickson's position was beyond precarious. His trench line was only just holding against the daily onslaught. He sent a letter to De Haro saying he had the intention of burning the whole city of San Juan to the ground unless the fort of El Moro was immediately surrendered. De Haro responded, quote, The settlers have enough courage to rebuild their houses, for there is timber in the mountains and building material in the land. 
And here I am today with people enough in this fortress to wipe out yours. And do not write any more such letters, for I will not reply. Concerning the rest, do as you please. Unquote. On October 22nd, Hendrickson made good on his promise. Not a building was spared. The churches especially were completely destroyed. As the San Juaneros watched their homes burn, they became incensed, and Captain Azmequita was given permission to lead a force of 150 men in a charge against the Dutch, who were still assembled in their forward trenches. On Azmequita's side were militiamen from all over the island. The Dutch dropped their pikes and muskets and jumped into the Atlantic Ocean, rather than face the vengeful, machete-armed Puerto Rican militias. 200 to 400 Dutch bodies covered the burnt-out city of San Juan. The horror was proved right, and the people rebuilt. After this attack destroyed a massive Dominican library in San Juan, efforts were made to rebuild that as well and reacquire the lost text. The governors responded to this new devastating attack by petitioning the Spanish crown for the funds to build massive walls around the island of San Juan. This was approved, and the construction of the walls on the southern and eastern flank of the city began in 1634. They took only four years to finish. In the meantime, disaster had struck the Spanish Empire. In 1628, the entire Spanish treasure fleet was captured by the Dutch as it sat helpless off the coast of Cuba. Its modern-day value, adjusted for inflation, is estimated at over 800 million American dollars. Throughout the rest of Puerto Rico, religious orders began to flock to the island. The first Dominican church was built in the 1630s, and the Franciscan friars also built a massive coven in San Juan. There was also a Carmelite coven for women, which was opened in the early 1650s. All these point to a society obsessed with religiosity. Additionally, priests were the few members of society who could read or had an education. They were also one of the few local outlets for justice. In Puerto Rico, the priesthood would often step in to mitigate violence, solve local disputes, and pass moral judgments on local autocrats. Their vocation made them untouchable in a society where your job defined your social status. The priests were usually the only teachers on the island as well, with classrooms and religious instructions seen as one and the same. They provided education and welfare to the island's population free of charge. Due to soldiers and government officials settling down on the island, immigration from Europe rising, and a high birth rate, the Puerto Rican population slowly climbed throughout the 1600s. Their main issues were epidemics, hurricanes, and pirate attacks. In spite of these issues, new townships sprang up. Among them were Ponce, Eguada, and Loitza. Around the Toa and Loitza river valleys, sugarcane was farmed, but the population still relied heavily on cattle as their main source of income. Spanish ships hardly sailed into San Juan Harbor. The island was virtually isolated, save one small ally. The Canary Islands had long been the original birthplace for many early Puerto Rican colonists. Merchants from the small islands in the center of the Atlantic were given special trading rights with the Caribbean. They abused this privilege to such an incredible extent, shipping much more product than was deemed legal. 
This created a symbiotic relationship between the lonely Puerto Rican market and the enterprising Canary Island merchants, who brought enslaved peoples, flour, and cooking oil. In 1640, the Iberian Union finally split up, and the Portuguese launched a massive revolt for their sovereignty. The first signs of serious political fragmentation were surfacing in Habsburg, Spain. In spite of these setbacks, Spain still controlled a good portion of the entire world. It would take British and French involvement to finally end all Habsburg claims on Portugal in 1668. Before this war ended, Philip IV of Spain died, and the crown passed to the inbred and disabled Charles II. His father and mother were uncle and niece. This led to serious health problems for the young king. His lower jaw was so deformed that it protruded far ahead of the rest of his mouth. This made it nearly impossible for the king to chew his food all the way, resulting in lifelong intestinal problems. Throughout his life, he was at death's door, suffering from rickets, brain swelling, and having already survived smallpox and measles as a boy. Charles had anything but an easy existence. Historian Langdon Davies summarizes Charles' life in the following way, quote, Of no man is it more true to say that in his beginning was his end. From the day of his birth, they were waiting for his death, Unquote. Charles was married twice, but he never produced children. To counter the effects of piracy and foreign incursion, the Spanish crown decided to fund a Caribbean-based armada which could quickly deal with these threats anywhere in the region. The fact that this initiative was only attempted after 120 years of such aggressive activity shows how truly careless the Spanish crown was with their American colonies. They relentlessly exploited any place which held gold, and the places without gold were left to wither on the vine. One of the only ways to break free of this cycle of despair was through smuggling, or black market dealings. As the Thirty Years' War ended, the threat of piracy lessened, but the need for smuggled goods increased exponentially. When the Caribbean Armada was created, San Juan was chosen as a harbor in which the fleet could winter. However, the island was in no position to host these ships. Islanders who had experience working with ships had long ago left for Cuba, Mexico, or Peru. All that remained were unskilled workers, the young, and women. Once a skill was acquired, all attempts were made to leave, as Puerto Rico was not viewed as a place in which one could make a living. Although smuggling made up most of the island's economy toward the second half of the 17th century, the death penalty was still used in certain cases against smugglers. For the most part, however, smugglers were seen as local heroes, and those found snitching were beaten. A priest from San Germán was nearly beaten to death by unknown assailants from Ponce for speaking out about the nature of smuggling to the town authorities. Thanks to the backward state of the island's economy, slavery was not as far-reaching in Puerto Rico as it was in Santo Domingue or Jamaica. In fact, many enslaved peoples were eventually able to quote-unquote buy their own freedom, as well as the freedom of their spouse or children. With a variety of European nationalities now immigrating to the Caribbean, enslaved Africans followed in high numbers 
some hundreds of thousands. Places like French Haiti and the coast of Brazil profited off the many enslaved Africans who were sold there. Many escaped enslaved peoples sought the protection of Puerto Rican shores. One such case in 1664 saw a group of escaped enslaved peoples from a British colony given their freedom on the island. Following this precedent, thousands of escaped enslaved peoples would call Puerto Rico home as its doors were flung open for any escaped enslaved person who wanted to live freely. Marriages between free individuals and enslaved individuals increased as well. Free women were settling down with enslaved men to counter the demographic deficiencies present on the island. Far from world history defining Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans seemed to have forged their own history by staying strong throughout the years of struggle they endured. Their main struggle would prove to be unrelenting disease. Thousands died in spotted fever and cholera outbreaks between the 1640s and 1680s. Between 1568 and 1700, Spain had been involved in no less than 40 different wars or rebellions. The extensive number of battles resulted in the deaths of at least millions of men. All of Spain's colonial resources were shipped off to the war effort, devastating the Americas' economy. As they funneled more and more into the armed forces, things like economic progress fell by the wayside. Besides the gigantic ports of Seville and Cadiz, the rest of Spain was incredibly poor. The far-off riches of which their local lord often spoke would never be seen by the poor illiterate farmers whose work made these same men so very, very rich. It was a society of contradictions. Where one saw wealth, there was severe poverty in tow. The more silver was mined in Mexico, the more it lost its value. A very real inflation crisis was gripping a state which still operated, for all intents and purposes, as a medieval feudal society. Spain would not allow manufacturing in their new colonies, lest the people realize they could be self-sufficient. They wanted to use their Caribbean holdings as a dumping ground for cheap Spanish goods, which were often of an inferior quality to that of the French, British, or Dutch. After Charles and his court fumbled with solutions, they believed they found a way to alleviate the suffering of one of their oldest possessions, the island of Puerto Rico. In 1674, the king ordered the formation of the Garda Costa, to defend Caribbean shores. This defensive mechanism became highly offensive, as now it was the Spanish who were found harassing and impounding British, French, and Dutch trade ships. Any ship deemed suspicious had to be brought to port and have its cargo thoroughly examined. As friendships developed between these coast guards and the port officials, corruption and clientelism quickly escalated the situation, until any ship could be seized. Thanks to the captains' contracts with their powerful employers, they were given a percentage of any contraband discovered. Despite their initial orders to counter the smuggling trade, they found much more profit in smuggling themselves, making deals with foreign craft, foregoing certain regulations, and charging extra for right-of-way. One hand washed the other, and it became very good business for many native Puerto Ricans. Miguel Henriquez became one of the most famous of these Puerto Rican coast guards. His favorite target was British shipping. 
Boats bound for Jamaica or the 13 colonies learned to fear the name Henriquez. The British referred to him as the, quote, grand arch-villain, according to Arturo Marias Querion. He was so loved by the King of Spain that he was granted the title Captain of Sea and War and Provider of the Corsairs of Puerto Rico. The king then named him a knight of the royal image for his, quote, service and bravery in battle, unquote. Henriquez would go on to distinguish himself in the Spanish attack on Crab Island, which would run out the Danish settlers who were squatting there. Charles II died on November 1700, a fitting date for the last Habsburg ruler of Spain. Following his death, a secession crisis swept the whole of Europe when Philip of Anjou, heir to France, was chosen as Spain's next monarch. Austria, England, the Netherlands, Savoy, Portugal, and the Holy Roman Empire all joined together in a unified front to challenge this choice. The war that ensued would rip Europe apart and come to be known to history as the War of Spanish Secession. The mood in Puerto Rico was very fretful. Another invasion seemed imminent. In 1702, three small raiding parties attacked Puerto Rico. To state what happened from Puerto Rico in interpretive history from pre-Columbian times to 1900 by Olga Jimenez de Wagenheim, quote, The British attacked Arecibo in August and Loiza in November. Both groups were repulsed by the local militia. In defense of Arecibo, Captain Antonio de los Reyes Correa and his men reported killing 30 Englishmen. The Dutch attack on southern Guadania was also repulsed by the timely defense of the militia, commanded by Domingo Pacheo. Armed only with spears and machetes, Pacheo's men killed 38 Dutchmen. Unquote. Under the rule of Governor Gutierrez de Rivera, Puerto Rico would be constantly forced to acquiesce to the governor's fear-ridden authoritarian demands. He called up militias from faraway districts to garrison the capital and demanded that local farmers hand over their provisions. Many residents from San Germán refused to comply. This led to fines, imprisonment, and even exile for some of the richer families of the town. The new king refused to stand up for his subjects and stood by the military-industrial complex, which the Spanish kings had always upheld. Following a grueling ten-year war of attrition, both sides sat down to talk. It was no victory for anyone. Maybe a million men died in the frightful engagements of early modern Europe. It was decided by the Treaty of Utrecht that Philip Anjou could become the Spanish monarch, but he had to forego any claim to the French throne. Additionally, Spain assented to the British right to be the sole supplier of enslaved labor to the Caribbean. The British would go on to ignore their quote-unquote right to trade enslaved peoples only. They would trade anything the Spanish Caribbean wanted. The smuggling and the Spanish authorities' response to it would only lead to more war in the future. But for now, the British would continue to smuggle and Spanish privateers would continue to impound anything British they could find. As this global struggle simmered for several years, the Puerto Rican island was experiencing stability and growth for the first time since the colonizers had arrived. The island had finally ceased to be ravaged by disease, pirate privations, and foreign attack.
the people could now thrive, and with that they experienced a baby boom. The population began to slowly explode. As the population spread out into the countryside, one of the first major struggles was about to present itself, creating tension between two of the island's most productive sectors. For centuries, Hato owners had been the main rulers of the island's vast interior. They felt the settling of the inland areas would only decrease the amount of land their herds could use to graze. The ensuing competition between the New Age farmer and the old-school Hato owner ignited the social confrontation which was necessary to move society forward. Hacendados, or large plantation owners, demanded herds be closed in. They feared the animals would damage their crops. Hato owners, on the other hand, demanded open space, free of fencing that could hurt their animals or impede their growth. Additionally, settlements on the island were few and far between. Traveling to mass or into town to sell goods were serious hassles for Puerto Ricans, who were now living in the hills far away from town. Town living was considered a rich man's life or the life of a smuggler or privateer. With a huge influx of people moving to the countryside, confrontation developed. Settlers on the island's west coast could not travel the roads to Iguada to hear mass during the rainy season. In 1726, this led to the petition for a new settlement. They wished to settle the town of Añasco with a, about 80 families. Opposed to the petition were 47 separate ranchers from San Germán who deemed the settlement would bring harm to their animals. They also claimed they would be subject to lawsuits if their herds broke into the planter's field. José de Santiago, the leader of the settlers, responded by arguing that a settlement on the mouth of the Añasco River would be highly strategic and the first line of defense to any foreign or pirate incursion. This argument clearly won the day for Santiago, and on February 21, 1729, he was named Teniente Aguera of the new small town. This seemingly inconsequential municipal confrontation ended up having serious ramifications on Puerto Rican history. With Añasco's founding, dozens of new towns and settlements began springing up all over the island. They would multiply and increase in the years to come, causing a massive population boom for the small island colony. Tens of thousands of children would go on to be born every year. Finally able to hold its head above water, Puerto Rico could grow and diversify. With bourbon rule, some well-meaning reforms would be attempted, but the main initiatives and changes to island life would end up being implemented by the islanders themselves. They did this often against royal approval. As Puerto Rico transformed, the world around the island changed as well. New ideas and theories were spreading about how the earth ought to be run. Liberty was the new rallying cry across the coasts of the Americas. It resounded and reverberated back to the old world with stunning effects. As this cry multiplied in the oppressed sectors of the globe, the many millions suffering in bondage began to hear it too. A bill was coming due, not just for the powerful and mighty, but for the poor, 
and the enslaved peoples across the globe. The second half of the 18th century changed the world forever. Political, economic, and technological advancement rocked the old foundation of society. Many Puerto Ricans began to look at their own role in the Spanish Empire and found their puzzle piece to have been jammed into the wrong puzzle against their will. Puerto Rico had already survived years of imperial isolation and neglect and foreign attacks alone. Why couldn't Puerto Rico survive alone politically as well? These questions would be posed with higher frequency as the world began to catch fire with the ideas of change, progress, and self-rule. Puerto Rico would find itself in a world of contradictions, where liberal idealism and racial chattel enslavement coexisted, and continual upheavals contrasted constant government supervision and crackdown. The life of the average Puerto Rican civilian was about to become much more difficult. Additionally, the technological innovation of the era would make the lives of enslaved peoples even more unbearable. The American, French, and Haitian revolutions would change the world forever, and the routes used to obtain freedom would shift. Puerto Rico was now the importer of many tens of thousands of enslaved Africans, who would later attempt to flee to Haiti or rebel in Puerto Rico. From these inhumane and egregious practices, a cry would be heard in the mountains, which would reverberate throughout Puerto Rican society to this day. This Grito de la Res would inspire Puerto Rico's first attempts to gain independence. Puerto Rico would go on to have their own revolution. To see if it succeeded, we will have to wait for the next episode of Turning Tides, Piecing Together the Past. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.